Do you want to stop yelling and have your child listen to? Well, I have exciting news for you. If you're hearing this right now, it means that the doors to mindful parenting are open at mindfulparentingcourse.com. This only happens for a limited time, and it may be perfect for you if you want to be that patient, calm parent, but you're afraid of being walked all over, you're losing it, and you want to be that steady, peaceful parent, you don't have a cohesive method, and you take in bad advice like just count to one, two, three. Mindful parenting is an evidence-based system that not only teaches you how to calm your reactivity, but offers you a ton of personal guidance. A lot of other parenting coaches talk about the best way to respond to your child, but guess what? They don't walk you through the research-proven practices that it really takes to create changes that actually last. Mindful Parenting teaches you the specific steps to create cooperative, loving relationships for life. In Mindful Parenting, you can learn how to stay calm, even if you find yourself shouting hourly now. Be present for your child no matter what they're going through. Resolve conflicts easily without yelling or taking away the iPad. Set limits without your child resenting you for days afterward. And build trust between you and your child so that you avoid misery in the teen years. The doors are open now at mindfulparentingcourse.com. Unlike other programs in Mindful Parenting, we offer one-on-one coaching to every member and weekly drop-in coaching sessions. Don't wait anymore. You and your kids are worth leveling up. Go to mindfulparentingcourse.com and join now before the doors close again. That's mindfulparentingcourse.com. I'll see you there. We're sanitizing and bubble wrapping childhood to a degree that really, really diminishes their resiliency and their ability to help themselves. You're listening to the Mindful Mama podcast, episode number 262. Today, we're talking about the anthropology of childhood and whether you are a weird parent with David F. Lancey. Welcome to the Mindful Mama podcast. Here, it's about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. At Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have, and when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm your host, Hunter Clark Fields. I help smart, thoughtful parents stay calm so they can have strong, connected relationships with their children. I've been practicing mindfulness for over 20 years. I'm the creator of Mindful Parenting, and I'm the author of the best-selling book, Raising Good Humans, a mindful guide to breaking the cycle of reactive parenting and raising kind, confidence kids. Hey, welcome back to the Mindful Mama podcast. I'm so glad to be connecting with you once again. I have a really, really fascinating conversation for you today. I'm, I'm so excited to share it with you. I'm going to be talking in just a moment with David Lancey, who is an anthropologist, researcher, and author of The Anthropology of Childhood, Cherubs, Chattel, and Changelings, and Raising Children, Surprising Insights from Other Cultures. He's has conducted extended fieldwork in Liberia, Papua New Guinea, Trinidad, Madagascar, Uganda, Yemen, and more. And we're going to talk about our 
Western upbringing of children, how that's different from the way children have been raised all around the world in many different times and many different cultures. So maybe you feel guilty if you don't play with your child or you feel bad because you want to break from your child. And David, in his research, encourages us to not to, that these are new developments in weird Western educated, industrialized, rich, democratic societies, and they don't actually benefit children. So he has some really fascinating ideas. I think that you will find so much in here. He compares our parenting with other societies and some ideas he has in this podcast that I invite you to take in and ponder. He says that attachment parenting is a myth and that mothers are not the sole caretakers in other cultures. How overparenting and overprotecting diminishes children's resiliency, and that just observing for children is much more effective than direct teaching. So the, you're, there's so much to get from this episode, whether you're a parent or a teacher or whatever age your kids are, this is incredibly fascinating stuff. So I can't wait for you to dive in I'm trying to think if I have any announcements. You know, it's like cold, dark, gray, winter, during a pandemic. <laughs> I'm a little antsy. I would love to be able to like get out there and go somewhere and do something. But I'm happy to be connecting with the Mindful Parenting members. And I'm so happy to be celebrating people's wins. People are, are creating more cooperation. Things are turning around in a bunch of families. We're creating all these accountability buddies where people are helping each other meditate, even as busy mamas. So there's so much happening there. That's kind of filling me up. So that's there. And I hope you have similarly something that is filling you up. Maybe it's this, maybe it's connecting with you right here. And I'm, I'm happy to do that. If you are interested in learning more about joining a tribe of like-minded parents and getting that support and personal advice, being able to ask your questions and getting the method that really turns things around, learn more at mindfulparentingcourse.com or head over to mindfulmamamentor.com. Get all the free resources and things that you may want to join the mailing list and I'll be so happy to be connecting with you. So anyway, let's dive into this episode. I know that you are going to get so much out of it. So without further ado, let's talk to David Lancy. David, thanks so much for coming on the Mindful Mama podcast. You're welcome. I'm glad to talk to you, and um, I've already introduced you, but I'm excited to talk to the, you about this idea of our society versus other societies in in the world and how, how we parent. Um, you know, we kind of think of like the way that we parent here in the West as you know, the, the, the way we get kind of myopic in our, in our point of view. And, and you have studied the way people parent and raise children in all kinds of different cultures. And I'm just wondering first kind of what, what got you interested in that? Um, somewhat of an accident. I was um, <clears throat> in graduate school at, the, at UC Irvine in psychology, not in anthropology initially, but in psychology. And it was involved in a research project where <clears throat> uh, we were comparing, we were using cognitive, various mainstream cognitive tests of various kinds, 
cross-culturally. That is, we were administering them to American middle-class kids and then uh, children from rural Liberia who spoke the Pella language. And um, <clears throat> to see what impact, if any, culture would have on those results. So I was sent over there to run those experiments, to run those tests. And um, I was living in a village, uh, where, which was our sort of base of operations. And I was just fascinated by um, what I was seeing, not in the testing situation, uh, which produced results that weren't particularly surprising or interesting in my opinion, but I was just, just hanging out with the kids and, and observing their lifestyles and, and so many aspects of their uh, experience was, was almost shocking to me in the sense it was so different from what I was used to. And I realized that my childhood is actually quite different, was quite different than contemporary childhood. So we've had all, in addition to the contrast cross-culturally, we have historical contrasts. Mm-hmm. Once I get into it, we're pretty pretty spectacular. So when I returned after well, a couple of years, can I say? Can ahead. I ask? What did you see that was so shocking? What, what did I see that was so yeah. shocking? Tremendous amount of freedom that the kids had. Mm-hmm. I mean, basically, from the time they woke up in the morning, what time they went to bed was their decision. What time they got up was their decision. If they missed out on breakfast, they would just go and scoop out some rice out of the cooking pot over the fire and have their morning rice. And their their play and work, they did. They were they were very good at doing all sorts of chores. They liked helping out. Um, particularly noticed children looking after uh, their younger siblings. This was absolutely standard practice, and I saw that everywhere, and I've seen it in my travels since then. This was, this was in 1968-69. I returned to Liberia more as an, uh, now as an anthropologist with training in anthropology, and I returned uh, just to do a study of um, childhood in this village, this remote village, and document it and then write about it. Oh, wow. So, and you, you, I know a little bit, of, you had a, a lot of freedom as well as a kid, right? I did. I had a lot more freedom and um, my, a very different attitude. Um, my, there was a very, very narrow area of things that my parents cared a lot about and interfered with, you know. Otherwise, as far as play, for example, my parents never played with me. Mm-hmm. People are often surprised to hear that. But if you talk to folks that are near to my age, that is that is from the 1950s, 60s, they don't remember being played with by their parents. This is, you know, this is the last half century or so that we've, this has become common. Place. But that's just one example of many areas where I was free. I, I had access to my father's tool chest and uh, was constantly building things. <laughs> um, so, yes, I had a lot, a lot of freedom. I uh, was not, uh, not worried about, uh, my parents didn't worry about me. I could go roaming in the woods 
I could go jump in the river that ran by our house and swim anytime I felt like it. So, um, yeah, that kind of freedom was very typical. All my playmates, the other kids, were just the same. I, I can relate to that a lot. Actually, growing up in Rhode Island, in I was born in 1978. So growing up in Rhode Island in my hometown, um, actually my oldest friend, I met her and her family because I was just four years old, just wandering around my block and <laughs> ran across them and discovered they lived behind us. And mm -hmm. I lived on a very safe street other than my parents wanted me to hold my breath while I, I went by the boat building uh, factory where they were uh, sanding fiberglass. So mm -hmm. they, didn't, they didn't want me to be breathing fiberglass. particles. But other than that, like I remember being with like kids in the neighborhood playing with like an old convertible that was behind a building mm -hmm. somewhere and just like all kinds of yeah. random, you right. know, breaking into the abandoned house lot that was yeah. like behind yeah. us. Yeah. And 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 not i don't really ever ever remember playing with my parents actually they did right. they did not play with me at all but but that is something people feel an enormous amount of guilt about now right. is right. that exactly. do we feel guilty if we don't want to play with our kids but man candyland would just kill your soul it's so boring oh my goodness <laughs> 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 Okay, <laughs> I, I'm glad I missed out on that. Yeah, don't don't go play Candyland with your grandkids. <laughs> but this is this is relatively new then, in general that we yes. we play with our kids. And you you also talk about and this is an acronym that wasn't coined by you, but but other people the the idea that our society and I've heard this before, but it may be new to the listener is weird, mm -hmm. uh, Western educated industrialized, rich, and, and democratic. So can you just describe some of the, some of the differences maybe that, are, that have evolved now that we consider normal that are maybe like really quite new? Well, um, you start with infancy. Um, <clears throat> we talk to our infants from a very early age. We start teaching them from an extraordinary early age. Even if it's not very effective, I've noticed this, uh, that, um, that the parents start going through the motions of teaching, pointing, pointing out things to their children, naming objects, then trying to teach them vocabulary. So this, this very, very, very early intervention uh, to accelerate uh, literacy, to accelerate cognitive development, um, you would never, I mean, I've, I have materials that I've gathered over the years on about a thousand different cultures and how they raise children. And you never see that. That's just, just not goes completely unreported. The closest you would come would be in the case of the few societies where with babies, um, they're played with in a kind of physical way, tickling, and face making and so on but that's about the extent of it otherwise parents certainly don't play with toddlers they send their toddlers off to play with their siblings and cousins and neighbors uh, <clears throat> so that heavy heavy involvement and management of the child the infant's intellectual life 
most societies uh, don't even really think that an infant has much of a brain. They don't think of them because they don't have speech and because they can't control elimination and they're pretty well helpless. They're sort of, the idea is just you keep them alive until they're interested, until they begin to get interested, until they, you know, they're really not fully human. Mm. Not fully human. They're not human. I want to tell you about a great podcast that you should check out, especially if you ever deal with any school system, which you probably do. It's called Understood Explains. This season of the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Ortube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. And this season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP and busts common myths about special education. So I checked out the episode on the difference between IEPs and 504 plans because my daughter Maggie uses a 504 plan and it was really, really helpful. It went over all the differences, which one's better, how to get them, different myths and what your rights are, all kinds of different things that you should understand if your child may need extra help in education through an IEP or a 504 plan. The tone is super helpful, friendly, and smart. I highly recommend you check it out. To listen to Understood Explains, just search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's it. Understood Explains. We are supported by Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as Math Mysteries About True Histories. It's a weekly show full of time travel puzzles, hidden equations, history, and lots of laughs. I highly recommend this podcast. It's really wonderful, especially if you have kids like around like six plus, but it can totally be enjoyed by the whole family. So I listened to the episode, The Pirate Queen, and you're just dropped right in the middle of the action. People are fighting. There's sword fight. And then these kids, they've gone on a time travel mission and they have to solve problems in the midst of it. And it really just like exemplifies everything we support here at Mindful Parenting. You know, kids who are adventurous, doing things on the world, they're capable. And then they do things like they have to do math, they have to think critically, they have to code break and pattern solving and all this great stuff. Beyond just the Pirate Queen episode, which I highly recommend, episodes transport listeners to moments in history, too, like Pythagoras, Ancient Greece, the era of the Aztecs, Sir Isaac Newton's England, and more. So jump in with your family. Follow the adventures of Max and Molly on an adventure through time with puzzles and hidden equations and laughs. And it really does make learning really fun and really cool. Perfect for ages six and up. New episodes drop every Thursday, each stacked with so much laughter that your kiddos won't even realize how much they're learning. So tune into Mysteries About True Histories with your kids, and you can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. That's Mysteries About True Histories. And, yeah, and, I mean, there's and, like lots of societies where they, you know, they really wouldn't think of children as fully human or even until they were even you know more more viable like you've lived past a certain amount of time so you're you're not going to die in infanthood right which was is very likely well that's a very good point and that's one of the most interesting things i've found because of the very high infant mortality rate that we don't even think about this is a big deal nowadays but but really up until late in the 19th and early into the early 20th century 
uh, 10, 15, 20% of, of children died before they were five years old. Okay. Consequently, the attitude is pretty much um, you don't make a big investment in, in them. And more importantly, you have elaborate theories. Uh, I've done a study on these. Uh, there, there are these elaborate theories. They vary in many respects, but, but they have the common denominator is that they see the child, the infant, as in limbo, that it's partly of the spirit world, partly of this world, that it's, that it's got, in effect, one foot in both camps. And so this accounts for things like the child's premature death and accounts for, uh, they think of it as accounting for anomalous behavior of the child. If it can't be comforted, it cries a lot. Uh, chronic sickness, all of these things are kind of explained as that the child is sort of, is, is reluctant to become fully human, is, mm. is in, in limbo, as I said. And there are societies which have, full, have medicines, quote unquote, and procedures to slowly transform this, this um, changeling, this, this um, not yet fully human individual in, into um, a, full, a, a human being. Hmm. You can't, they don't take it for granted that, that, that every child just sort of proceeds ahead and develops. Um, so it's considered the most important thing is not cognitive stimulation or language development or any of those things. It's basically it's to keep the child alive. Keep the, well, okay, what are the procedures? I'm too curious. I got to know. So you <laughs> well, I mean, you, you get some, there's there, any of them you think, my God, it's more likely to kill the kid than, uh, than save them. Oh, there's a, there's a, there's one where a baby will be passed over the, a greenwood fire. What that does, I have no idea. Massaging, a number of societies believe in massaging the child. Um, swaddling and cradle, use of cradles, cradle boards and so on, are often justified on the basis of helping to strengthen the child, helping to keep it strong and and the, the swaddling um, uh, sort of random movement on the part of the baby. You know, you think of this typical baby kicking its legs, throwing its arms in the area, flopping around. We think that's kind of cute, you know, and we, we tickle them and make faces to kind of encourage that sort of, sort of uh, playful, what we already see as playful behavior. Whereas many other societies would see that as dangerous, as really a sign of disorganization, and uh, too inhumane, too 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 spirit-like, too um, too too inhuman. Um, <laughs> so, um, all right, all right. That's well, one. That's one area where there's a pretty wide gulf in how we view children. It's so interesting because, you know, there, on one hand, there's like the research, right? That they say, oh, talk to your children, talk to your children, because oh, yeah. it helps mm -hmm. language development. Uh, now, I'm curious about what you think about, you know, there's certain uh, 
styles of parenting, like, you know, there's like attachment parenting, right? Which was such a big mm -hmm. thing where, right. you know, at least for me, I remember with my kids being like, oh my gosh, I don't want to mess up my children and have them be insecurely attached human beings for the rest of their life. And, right. and it really was much more, I, I mean, um, I, I did share a bed with my, my kids when they were infants and I remember trying to like, I, I would like tuck it, we would tuck in the sheets so they would only come up to our waist. <laughs> and so we spent like all night, like unconsciously trying to pull up the sheets, <laughs> but we wanted to make sure our child was okay. Um, but there's, you know, attachment parenting, for instance, talks about how, you know, kind of harkens back to other societies, right? Harkens back to these like older, better days of human development where we, um, you know, we wear the babies, they get the heartbeat and, you know, mm -hmm, close mm -hmm. contact and all of those things. And this like strong attachment in, in at, at least the way attachment parenting was, I, I learned uh, mostly looking at like sort of the Sears baby book and things like that was, had to be like the mother was like, had to be everything. And, and how, how do you, I, I'm just curious how you see something like that and, and how mm -hmm. it relates to other societies yeah. and how they do things. Happy to tell you that I think attachment parenting is one of the world's greatest cons. <laughs> an enormous harm to parents. And to mothers. Provoking guilt Specifically, to yes. I Absolutely. Think so. yeah. it, is, it, is a, it, is, it is a myth. It is totally a myth. And I can speak very confidently about that because... It turns out the norm for, for in most societies is the mother is not the sole caretaker of the child. In fact, pretty quickly, certainly by the time the infant is six months old, the mother is passing that baby off to spend most of their time with an older sibling or the grandmother or father uh, because the mother is it's got a lot of work to do. Yeah. I mean, the mother's a breadwinner. I mean, I mean, it's very rare that you find a kind of anything equivalent to the stay at home mom whose primary responsibility is looking after children. So then this is, this is a phenomenon that we call alloparenting. That is it's, it, 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 or a more popular way to think about it. It takes a village. So you have, you have this, panoply of neighbors and relatives of various ages who pitch in to help to take care of the child. And even when the child is with its mother, it's, it, it, it's it, when it's with, with its mother, it is with its mother, meaning that it's attached to her body. So it's getting contact and attachment, if you will, through the natural process of her carrying it while it's still an infant, nursing it, and nothing more needs to be done. I mean, that really takes care of the problem. This whole attachment problem really arose from studies of children in orphanages where they were essentially warehoused in cribs with no interaction no interaction with an adult or with other children. They're just warehoused, kept alive, kept alive. But otherwise, they, re they had no, little or no interaction. 
certainly very little physical interaction um, carried around. So that really, that extreme case is what provoked this whole attachment business. I, I just have, I, I do not believe the whole business about insecurely attached and all this and that. I mean, there have been studies that showed one of the, some of the earlier studies using the same instrumentation we use in this country to measure the security of an infant's attachment. A study was done in Germany, it replicated something like 45% of the children were determined to be insecurely attached. That doesn't make sense. I mean, that, that just, that's ridiculous. You can't have half your population <laughs> mentally ill <laughs> because they, of something that was lacking in infancy. That just, just makes no sense. Hmm. So, so I, I feel very strongly about this. I, I just think it's, it's, um, it's a crock. I also think that, that, that the exhortation to play with your children, that it's some you're obligated to play as a parent, as a mother, I feel very similarly about that, that that's uh, no evidence whatsoever that there, that somehow the child would be harmed. Uh, you do have situations, you had a wonderful childhood where you get to roam throughout the neighborhood and find playmates wherever you would find them. And there are, unfortunately, today, high-rise urban ghettos, for instance, where children can't just wander the neighborhood family sizes are smaller, so you don't have your siblings to play with. So, I mean, it may, it may really come down in, in, in some families, in some, some situations where the child really doesn't have a playmate at all. And, you know, I, if, if I were the parent, I would, I would pitch in and, and help to make sure they had a good play experience. Yeah. But I wouldn't carry it as far as what's recommended, which is to, to really make, um, make it a huge part of, of the day. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I think it's overblown. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, whew, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us. Lynn, this time of year, parenting can be such a fluster clucks. You've come to the right place. 
I'm Lynn Lyons, and I've been treating anxious families for over 30 years. I'm Lynn's sister-in-law and co-host Robin Hudson. Join us for Fluster Clucks, a podcast for parents who worry. Wait, that's everybody. Yeah, these last few years have felt like one long anxiety attack for so many. Why do you think parents are always surprised that a podcast about anxiety relates to them, even if no one in their house has an anxiety disorder? Well, worry is human. Everyone does it. And anxiety shows up when we face uncertainty. All the parenting tips you've taught me have been essential. I love to break it down into skills we need to manage worry in our families. We've covered so many topics, depression, burnout, meltdowns, perfectionism. Don't forget scary mothers-in-law. Right, but of course that's not my mother-in-law. Because that's my mother. And a listener. As a psychotherapist, I like to teach parents and kids how to respond to everyday moments in healthy ways. Managing anxiety really can be taught. It really can. And I'll even tell you what to say. We talk about serious stuff, but without being too serious. Anxiety wants everything serious. Anxiety doesn't stand a chance when we're laughing, even about the tough stuff. I, I agree with you. And I guess I, I think I've, I've come to see it as like, you know, if you have a relationship with your child and like ge generally if your relationship is pretty good with your child, like, and everything's pretty kosher, yeah. there's no need to like go play Candyland or pretend to be Barbies. It's like, it, exactly. it's, it's annoying exactly. and, and it, it just makes you frustrated. But maybe, maybe there are times where like, you you and your child are having a lot of difficulty and then then might be a nice time to to be like let's let's set some time where i'm really there sure. with you and and yeah sure. i'll play whatever you want sure. right so just like any relationship you give it some time and attention in a way that's really makes sense to that relationship you know you're giving you're giving a lot of credit to the parent to figure things out to to see where there's a problem potentially and to in to come up with a solution. What I object to in so much of the parenting literature today is are these mandates. Mm -hmm. They're treated like mandates. You must do this. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you don't, you're gonna be irre irrevocably harming your child. Really, really frosts me. <laughs> yeah, when no. I, hear, you know, I agree. When I see I... things like that. I feel incredibly frustrated by that too, because it, it puts so much pressure on parents, specifically mothers or, or whoever's home with that child. Like it's so, there's so much pressure on this person to make this like kind of ideal situation. And you talk about that too, right? How like mothers in different societies, you know, this sort of like cult of motherhood thing. I mean, this all yes. is, is, is fairly new, right? It's kind of it's right. fairly oh, new absolutely. with industrialization, very, very Western new, societies right. and things like that. So talk to us a little bit about that. Oh, the, uh, well, it's, um, I, I, in my research, I can trace out the history. I mean, you, you, it, it's it's real interesting. For example, the the earliest sort of um, signs, okay, of weird parenting, probably date from the 16th century, 15th and 16th century Netherlands. Hmm. The ne Netherlands was an interesting country because it 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 was a very for its during that period is very modern country in that it kind of thrown off a lot of the medieval trappings of society and embraced commerce 
so the Dutch were, had this tiny little country that became phenomenally wealthy, largely through trade. So they had all this money. And they very, embraced very, individualism too, right? They like about Mar- individual, Martin Luther, exactly. Martin exactly. Luther, right? Like the he was saying like, we have an individual relationship with God. I don't, I don't need to have this Absolute, whole community absolutely, experience absolutely. of the church, et cetera. Right. So it's like commerce absolutely. and individualism. Right. Ding, ding. <laughs> right. <clears throat> so they had the means and then you see signs. Uh, I, I paid particular attention to, to paintings. So family portraits, if you had money, you had family portraits done. And what's interesting is that the Dutch, their uh, paintings from that era show consistently affectionate relations between um, parents and children. There's actually spending time with each other. And this is a breakthrough. Uh, Pictures of mothers reading to children from this early period. So this is the first sort of inklings you get of a a change in how the first signs of kind of the, the, the weird Um, pattern of parenting very different from what had been the case for centuries before then. I mean, you think about the fact that among the, 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 um, the wealth, I mean, you have two kinds of two classes of society as far back as the ancient Greeks, you had peasants and the children are just going to basically be blended right into the family work unit as soon as they could. And if they're well-to-do families, then the parents don't really have anything to do with the kids at all because they are servants to take care of them. And so the, so as far as parenting, parent, there was no such thing. People didn't parent, okay? You hired. You, 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 you hired out breastfeeding. You hired out nur- a nurse. You hired out a tutor a pedagogue, if you're talking about Greek society. Um, and so the Dutch appear to be the first, the, the, the early modern Dutch appear to be the first people that seem to take pleasure in caring for their children and saw that as, you know, an enjoyable part of their lives. Um, so it kind of starts there, and I don't, but I don't see any, I don't see any inflection point up to the present, that is, I don't see, others might answer that, have an answer for that, but I don't see any particular inflection point. It just seems like this fairly steady and exorable prog- progress towards where, where we are, are today. And um, I think that um, there's, other people would point to the rise of the, the, what's called the medicalization, medicalization of child rearing. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a period in the last, in the 19th century, and then carrying over the early 20th century, when midwife, midwifery, for example, was, came to an end, basically, mm-hmm. that the medical profession took over childcare and not just children's illnesses and injuries, but advice about how to raise them. And oh yeah. So, like Dr. Spock, like you're supposed to, yeah. you're supposed to only yeah. feed your child on this rigid schedule kind of thing. I, my mother has told me about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, Dr. Spock's book, I think still is the second 
best-selling book in the world after the Bible. Wow. So it still has <laughs> hold sway. But yeah, the, the, the whole idea that, that um, essentially taking care of children was, was considered as, as, a, as a sort of natural, uncomplicated thing. You did what your parents did mm-hmm. with you, and they were just doing what was done to them by their parents. And it's, it's just passed on like any other folklore, like any other cultural artifacts passed on from generation to generation. Well, the, this, this medicalization thing puts a stop to that. It more or less conveys the idea that you cannot rely upon those past practices because they're not scientifically validated. <laughs> they're not, they're not um, backed up by authority. And so that could be another point at which in the history of this that you would sort of stop and pause and say, yeah, we see where a lot of our thinking today may have originated with this expert thing. And then the internet comes along and you've got blogs, which um, are to me part and parcel of that movement. Mm. And, and I know from my, my own daughter who, who's raising an infant, and she depends enormously on mommy blogs for ideas and guidance, as well as authoritative literature. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I, I t- have to tell her to lighten up every once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's probably good, but it's interesting because it's like, you know, we can see there's, you know, the acronym weird, right, is like kind of inherently a little bit derogatory, right? Like there's right, some, right. implying there's something sure. wrong with our society. But, you know, at the same time, you know, if we look at just like what was passed on to us, a lot of us don't necessarily want to pass on that that on to our children. That's like, true. I don't want to, right. I don't want to hit my children. I don't want to yell at my children. Right. right. Like, so right. I, I do want to learn something different. Right. So there's, it's interesting because there's a lot of positive that's come along with all the learning and the change and the, uh, this differentiation and invo- evolvement. Um, but what do you, what do you specifically see as maybe some of the negative things that have come along with it? I mean, for me, I guess I look at it and I think like, just one of the biggest negative things is just that we live by ourselves in these tiny little units and we don't have aunts and uncles yeah. and cousins yeah. and, and all of those mm-hmm. people around. We, we see ourselves as so individual that we, we don't support each other. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know. What, mm-hmm. what do you see as some of the, some of the things we've lost, I guess? Well, I, um, <clears throat> one thing that I've, that I've uh, paid attention to is um, the what I would call overparenting or intensive parenting or overprotection, um, and it's sort of based on the notion that if a little bit, a little bit of some, some something, it, it seems to do some good, then lots of it will do even better. <laughs> so true. <laughs> so, yes. oh, no. so I think. If you want to, if you want to compare the before and after, um, what you can, I can talk about what we've lost. And in my in my experience, um, one of the things we're losing with the way we're overprotectively parenting now. One of the things we're losing is that children don't get to learn to make decisions on their own, make 
to to weigh risky situations. Um, can I just I interrupt you yeah, here for a second, sure. David, because yeah. I just have to, this is so funny because I can see, look out my window from where we're having this conversation and I can see my 10 year old daughter has just climbed on the roof of my carport. Just <laughs> so <laughs> ironic that we're having this conversation Oh right my now. gosh, yes. <laughs> Do you want to pause No, 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 it's okay. Go, She's okay. Uh, She's allowed to be on the good, roof of the good. carport. Well, <laughs> but it's so funny. <laughs> You, you, yeah, it, it, you get some comments from your from your listeners to that. Your 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 laissez-faire attitude, <laughs> but um, but I think I think uh, being able to take the initiative to take risks to make decisions, resiliency, bounce back after an injury, a fall, a scraped knee. Uh, we're we're sanitizing and bubble wrapping childhood to a degree that really, really diminishes uh, their, their resiliency and their ability to help themselves. Um, I, can, I can take a, draw a direct line between that kind of parenting and the problem we have with our college students today, which is a high proportion of them have emotional problems. And this is new. This is absolutely unprecedented. Um, this and, and most of my colleagues were just are at a loss. That is, fellow professors are at mm -hmm. a loss and know how to handle. And um, I mean, this semester, my my uh, spouse, as I said, is a is a professor of English, has had a student who's suicidal and had to kind of call on the university's resources. And when you, when you unpackage the, the, the problems, it's just they, they just don't have very good coping abilities. And so if you've been helicopter parented and snowplow parented and cotton wool parented, um, I, I think it leaves you vulnerable in an extremely vulnerable state for adversity. And of course, we're going to have adversity. We do the best we can to shield our children from setbacks of various kinds. But once they get out into the world, and of course, they may not get out into the world because then you have the failure to launch problem, which I think is also attributable to this uh, <clears throat> kind of over-scaffolding, always being there to help your children over a, a rough spot, um, you know. Yeah. So I, th th that to me is, I'm, that's the sort of thing that, that really concerns me. I, I can see the in effect the end product or not the end product, but the, 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 the interim state when students are going into college. And I've, I've been teaching in college since 1968, so I've seen a lot of students <laughs> <laughs> under, under very different circumstances. And, and what I'm seeing today, as I said, in, in so many of the students who are, who are just cannot take adversity, I mean, are, are, are devastated by an A minus, mm -hmm. just devastated. Yeah. That, that concerns me. That concerns we're, me. We're so concerned about threats 
uh, we're creating this much larger problem of not being able to deal with any difficulties whatsoever. Right, yes, right. my ten-year-old who is currently on the carport, she's uh, she's always been a a, a climber, and I, I've I've encountered many a, a moment where she's uh, climbed to the top of the. Uh, to the top of the like swing set, you know, like we have these old fashioned mm -hmm. swing sets in our neighborhood yep. and shocked many, many a parent who's walked oh. by and shocked me very much, of course, the first time. And then by the, by the fourth time I got over it. <laughs> but one, one of my favorite images that I keep in my head from my children's um, early childhood was, was my daughter, younger daughter, Sonia, doing exactly what you described, climbing up over the swing set the out on the outside with the and 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 um it was a swing set because this was in papua new guinea at the time it was a swing set that i had made so it had a had a ladder that went up vertically and then horizontally and ended in the slide and all on her own she was still wearing diapers i remember that they're almost falling off her as she climbs up this thing and i'm just standing there you know Petrified, like like Lot's, <laughs> Lot's wife, <laughs> just do I intervene? <laughs> you know? and, yeah, yeah. And I remember another occasion with my older daughter, where she was. We were living in a two-story house, and um, she was upstairs in bed, and I was downstairs, and I hear this rumbling noise, and realized that that she's falling down the stairs oh no that she that she'd gotten to the maybe i didn't have the gate closed or whatever anyway i i heard this and i arrived at the landing just in time to kind of catch her or to stop her progress and i gave her this and she had this this startled look on her face of course and i gave her this big smile and I said, wow, wasn't that fun? And then she sort of very tentatively gets us, you know, in the corner of her mouth. I guess so, You see her starting to <laughs> smile and her eyes kind of big and helping her decide that was an adventure and not a tragedy. <laughs> so it sounds like we, we share a, allowing yeah, some, yeah. Some, some freedoms for our child. Yeah. I remember spending lots of time underneath my daughter, kind of holding my arms out just, uh, just in case, you know, just kind of yeah, like, yeah, okay, yeah, you're yeah. pretty high up there. I'll just kind of hang out here just, just right. in case. Right. Um, and you, you talk about what are some of the things that we need and, um, and you talk about um, the uh, the chore curriculum. So what mm -hmm. do you what do you? And I'm, so I'm wondering, like with your own kids, obviously you you gave them some freedom to have take some risks. Did you right. did you give them a, a the chore curriculum? And, and what is that? <laughs> <laughs> well, the chore curriculum is a, a term that I, I coined um, to uh, to explain how children learn their culture without teaching, without being taught. And essentially it's got a lot of different components, but it, it starts with um, kids having an interest in doing stuff that big people are doing. Mm -hmm. they, they have a natural curiosity 
I'm sure you've noticed this with your children. When you're in the kitchen, they want to be there. They want to be sticking their nose in what you're doing and helping. And, and um, that's, this is what I've observed in, of children in other cultures. And then they pick up on tools. Sometimes they're old discarded tools that nobody wants. Sometimes they're sharp knives and hatchets and so on. And um, the most I've ever seen a parent uh, do in a village situation like that is maybe take the sharp knife away and substitute it for a duller knife, but never, never really prohibiting the child from playing with knives. Um, <clears throat> so it's access to the tools, access to the materials, Village societies are much more open than our society. So, so you, things are done out in the open, even among the Inuit, among the Eskimos. When they, when, they, when they make things, when they build things, they're not inside their igloo. <laughs> they're not assembling watches. They're building big stuff, sleds, boats, kayaks tools they're outdoors and the children you know with umpteen layers of anoraks on are right in there pitching in slaughtering a seal um getting all bloody and it's just great it's just great so the, the chance to plunge in uh and participate in whatever it is adults are doing the, the children are always if necessary you slow down you don't do what you're doing quite so fast you you are careful not that they shouldn't get injured, but you, you don't bar them from the activity at all. Other aspects of the chore curriculum include the fact that every society I've studied has a kind of graduated, has their chore inventory graduated. So that so the, the youngest children are likely to be sent uh, on errands. So that's a very important chore because it gives the child a sense of responsibility there. And it also allows them to fulfill a desire to be helpful and to pitch in and to be part of the family unit contributing. Um, setting the table, um, um, carrying the baby, um, <clears throat> not, not feeding the baby, not necessarily changing the baby, but just carrying the baby, keeping it, keeping it comfortable and, until it needs to be passed over to the mother for nursing, for example. Uh, so, there, so, so all of these areas of work are looking after animals, herding in a pastoralist society. You start out with a goat. And in the first edition of my book, book The Anthropology of Childhood, Cherub's Chattel Changeling, <laughs> the cover is, shows a little boy holding a pet goat. Now this little boy would be herding goats and maybe camels too later when he's older. But it starts with one animal who's a pet who you have to care for and not let run away and feed. So it, it, that's another aspect of the chore curriculum. Is it's, 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 it, and of course, nobody sat down and plotted this out. This is not a curriculum committee that is plotting the, the, uh, the, the educational program for the kids. This is, this is just the way cultures kind of work and it, it it applies to adults as well as children so if an adult is would like to learn how to weave for instance 
then they don't necessarily ask someone to teach them, but they ask if they can watch, or maybe they can borrow an old loom, and you'll see two people side by side weaving, for instance, one's observing the other for the most part. The, the expert weaver may make a comment from time to time, but they're not teaching in the usual sense of the word. They're not giving lessons. It's not their responsibility that this apprentice weaver learns to weave. That's up, that's, that's up to the apprentice. They chose to want to learn to weave. So did you give your kids a goat? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, uh, yeah, well, we, I, we tried the pet thing and tried a pet bunny. And this was in Arizona, and unfortunately, um, some critter got the bunny. Oh, no. <laughs> so, yeah, that yeah, <laughs> no, was sad. I was given a goat. I was given a goat, however, as a child. Uh -huh. And it, it ended badly because oh, no. uh, the, the goat was tethered to the back door, the uh, yeah, the back door of the house, and um, off to kind of had its had its food and so on, just off to the side of it, leading up to the porch. And the, um, the stairs jumped off the porch and hung itself. <gasps> oh no, God, <laughs> poor goat. <laughs> yeah, right. So. Oh my goodness. Anyway, no, can it, you? It, yeah, it doesn't. I mean, that's part of the learning process, though, that there are these tragedies that occur. The goat gets killed. Yeah, yeah, I guess, I guess that's true. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I'd love to, I mean, pets, there's so, so many, so many good things about that, the care of animals and all that. My, my daughter would like us to have a farm actually, but <laughs> we're, we're going to leave it at, at uh, two cats, a dog, and four fish and two snails right now. So, uh, but you talk, uh, there's also, can you explain this? And I think this is so interesting. You talked about this relationship of like learning and that, you know, we don't, the, there isn't this like explicit teaching. And there was like a study, right? Once where they, they gave a group of children a, a complicated toy and one mm -hmm. group was explicitly taught how to use mm -hmm. the toy. And the other right. group of children was just left to explore this toy on their own. Can you uh, share what happened with that and, and how this relates to what you were just talking about? Yeah, that's actually, there've been a lot of, uh, quite a few studies, um, maybe inspired by the one you mentioned, but quite a few studies uh, that show, for example, that, um, <clears throat> um, you know, it obviously depends on the toy and some toys are just too complicated I mean, given the age of the child and so on, but let's let's just say what are the ways in which you can learn and figure out toys? Um, turns out that observing someone else um, play with the toy or take the toy apart or figure out what it's supposed its function, what it does, just just observing uh, is more effective than a lesson than teaching. In particular, one a recent study that you may not be familiar with, I was very impressed by. It talked about uh, taking a really complicated toy. You know, many modern toys are multifunctional. They do all sorts of things. Um, mm -hmm. I've noticed this with my granddaughter. Her toy inventory includes these these toys that have multiple functions of various kinds. Well. In the lesson, 
condition when the child is taught at least partially what the toy does uh, as opposed to just an observation session or a session where they're left to play with the toy on their own. The ones that were not taught, that didn't have the lesson, uh, discover a lot more about the toy on their own. That is, they, they, the, the ones that were taught never fully uh, understand and discover all the functions and all the things the toy can do. They just basically stick to what they were taught mm -hmm. and don't go beyond that. Mm -hmm. And there's a concept now in, in, in child psychology, developmental psychology called imitation, over-imitation, over-imitation. And <clears throat> what, what they find is that kids pretty consistently, pretty reliably um, will copy a teacher, an adult model, even when they're doing things that are non-functional. So, for instance, within one of the classics, you have, this, you have this light, okay? And in order to turn the light on, the cover of the light, the top cover of the light, so it's sort of a flattish rectangle, like a cigar box. And the top of it is, a, is the lens of the light, and you just push on it, and it turns it on. And the teacher, um, you know, set up as a lesson, would turn it on and off with their forehead. <laughs> so rather than just use their hand to turn it on, they're doing it with their forehead. And what they found was that um, as long as kids sort of looked upon this as a, a lesson and as the, this person as a teacher or model, they, they imitated exactly what he did. But if, if, it were, if it were done in a little more casual way, for example, they just happened to see this light and people turning it on and off in various ways, then when it came their turn to turn, turn it on or off, they used their hands. They didn't, they didn't you know, they, they, they left it up. So I think, I think what we're seeing is a difference between how, how, who has control over the learning process. Is it the child? Are they in control? Are they taking the initiative to learn? Or are they largely passive? Mm. And because the teacher is the authority and you're, you're really demonstrating not just learning, but obedience yeah. and, it, and, it, and, it, and, it, and adherence to the role of pupil. Yeah, wow. That's and I think, a lot of, I think a lot of our... Um, over over parenting what i consider to be over parenting is is driven by this anxiety that our kids will not be good pupils will not uh get the full value of their schooling and it's one of the reasons we have so many parents who are super anxious about the schools in their neighborhood you know picking really really good schools um because i think there's excessive in my view anxiety about a child not really taking school seriously not really taking the work seriously mm. yeah and I think that I think they're showing good judgment and discernment because so much of the curriculum is so <laughs> uh, I don't know um, uninspiring uninspiring and and yeah yeah Yes. Well, maybe, maybe parents are 
also worried about passive versus active learning. You know, it's really right. interesting. I mean, yeah, right. for right. me, that, that's something I was really, really interested in. Was it intrinsic motivation? Sure. Was it active right. learning versus, versus passive learning? And so mm-hmm. my, we're, very, we're a very Montessori family. <laughs> we're right. very into right. that. Um, right. Oh, my goodness. There's so many different places we could go down with this. I didn't even ask you some of the questions I, I wanted to ask you, David. This is really, really um, fascinating. I love what you've shared. Um, for people who are interested in learning more about, about you and, and your work, uh, where can they find you and where can they find your, your books? Well, um, I have a website, and I would just say Google David F. Lancey. I mean, uh, on Amazon, if you Google me, you'll find a lot of books, including a book I wrote a couple years ago just for parents. Um, My other books are more scholarly, although the Anthropology of Childhood book was reviewed in the New York Times, and the headline was, The Only Baby Book You'll Ever Need. It's actually a mis mislabeling, frankly, but um, but it but it. I think my um, my books are very accessible, very readable. So you'll find them on Amazon, or you'll find them on my website, which is just David Lancy. And what's the title uh, of the parent of the one that's more geared towards parents? Raising raising children, surprising insights from other cultures. Okay. So it's just, just, it's about just this, exactly what we've been talking about today. In the same tone and the same juxtaposition of what we do and what I've found in other societies. Well, definitely. And it's not so much a judgment. It's mm-hmm. not so much judging that what we do is bad or they do is good. It's that there are alternatives. I mean, that's my central argument is that there's not just one way to do it. And I, I really appreciate that. I really appreciate that point of view. Dear listener, do go go get David's book. And David, thank you so much. I really, you're, really you're appreciate welcome, your... your, your a, I had fun. It oh, was good. 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 <laughs> I, I mean, I really appreciate your wisdom and your thoughtfulness and, and taking, taking the time. It's really a pleasure. My pleasure. I think that's so wonderful what he says about how observing is more effective than direct teaching. I think talking to David has really given me a uh, a sense of like relaxation and relief and I, I hope he's do- it does that for you too. I hope this episode is helpful and of course if it is helpful, share it around, share it with friends. You know, we have over a million downloads now and it's because of you. It's because of this amazing community. You know, you may think that I'm just talking to to anybody in this podcast, but I am really, really grateful for you. I am grateful for you in your ears, your open-mindedness to all these new ideas that you are a thoughtful person who is curious about all these ideas like that means so much to me and that means so much to me that you are on this path with me to transform these generational patterns it's powerful it's wonderful it's awesome so thank you I really really 
appreciate you. I appreciate your listening. And yeah, a great way to get to share these ideas more is just simply to share them. Like take a screenshot and text your friends or take a screenshot and put it on Facebook and or Instagram. Tag me. You know, I'm at Mindful Mama Mentor. I love to see that. And thank you so much. Those of you who are sharing it, who have left reviews and done all those great things, that means a huge amount and it, it helps to keep things going. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And I can't wait to be back in your ears next week. We have some amazing episodes coming up. We're going to be talking about how to handle remote learning, how to communicate more skillfully with your kids, how to be a good dad. We got an episode especially for dads coming up. So be sure to check back in to your inbox on Tuesday mornings or wherever you're listening to the podcast. Make sure you're subscribed. And I will be back talking to you then. Thank you so much for listening. I really, really appreciate your ears. I know that this is having ripple effects in your life and in mine. And I truly believe in your good heart and you being part of the healing simply by being here. So let's let that grow together. Thank you so much for being here. Namaste. Say definitely do it. It's really helpful. It will change your relationship with your kids for the better. It will help you communicate better. And just, I'd say communicate better as a person, as a wife, as a spouse. It's been really a positive influence in our lives. So definitely do it. I'd say definitely do it. It's so worth it. The money really is inconsequential when you get so much benefit from being a better parent to your children and feeling like you're connecting more with them. And not feeling like you're yelling all the time or you're like, why isn't things working? I would say definitely do it. It's so, so worth it. It'll change you. No matter what age someone's child is, it's a great opportunity for personal growth and it's a great investment in someone's family. I'm very thankful I have this. You can continue in your old habits that aren't working or you can learn some new tools and gain some perspective to shift everything in your parenting. Are you frustrated by parenting? Do you listen to the experts and try all the tips and strategies, but you're just not seeing the results that you want? Or are you lost as to where to start? Does it all seem so overwhelming with too much to learn? Are you yearning for a community of people who get it, who also don't want to threaten and punish to create cooperation? Hi, I'm Hunter Clark-Fields, and if you answered yes to any of these questions, I want you to seriously consider the Mindful Parenting membership. You'll be joining hundreds of members who have discovered the path of mindful parenting and now have confidence and clarity in their parenting. This isn't just another parenting class. This is an opportunity to really discover your unique, lasting relationship, not only with your children, but with yourself. It will translate into lasting, connected relationships, not only with your children, but your partner too. Let me change your life. Go to mindfulparentingcourse.com to add your name to the wait list. So you will be the first to be notified when I open the membership for enrollment. I look forward to seeing you on the inside. mindfulparentingcourse.com.
Hi there, I'm Andrea Owen, self-help author with 19 translations of my books, global keynote speaker, and life coach. My podcast, Make Some Noise, has been serving up self-help in a simple-to-digest way for the last decade. The topics brought in each episode are practical and easy to implement around topics such as working through fears that keep you stuck, different modalities of therapy, managing your negative self-talk, and more. We bring you guest experts, solo episodes, and I even coach listeners on the air around relatable struggles. I also do my best to weave my sense of humor into some heavy topics because let's face it, life can be pretty hard and it's so much better when we can have some fun while walking through our challenges. Whether you're seasoned in personal development or just starting out, Make Some Noise podcast will help you become the best version of yourself, the person you're proud of when you look in the mirror and show up in your life. Simply search Make Some Noise with Andrea Owen wherever you listen to your podcasts.